Hello, my name is Lee Shellnut, and I'm the pastor of the Huntersville Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's a mouthful, so we affectionately know of ourselves as HARP. We at HARP welcome you to the podcast of our preaching and teaching ministry. We're grateful that you've joined us. If you're encouraged by what you hear, we'd love to have you subscribe. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we love sharing the glorious good news of the Lord Jesus Christ as we preach and teach through the pages of Holy Scripture. So join us now as we open up God's Word. This is the invitation. Amen. You may be seated. As you're taking your seats, our text today is found there on page 10 through 12. And yes, it's a lengthy passage. Uh, It's 2 Samuel chapter 14. I, I described my dealings with this chapter this week to the first service as a sponge. When I first began to work on the passage this week, it was like a dried sponge, it's very small. And I'm wondering, what in the world do I do with this text? What in the world do I do with this story? What's it saying? It didn't seem to be saying a whole lot. It's a part of a larger story. But the more I went, the more it grew. Sort of like water's being added to the sponge. I think that was a decent analogy. I think maybe the better analogy is, I thought it's more like a string. And at the beginning of the week, that string was about this long. And I started to pull. And as I pull, it gets longer and longer and longer. Okay? Hopefully it won't get too long. And I debated, should I read the entirety of this chapter or just a few verses and then try to summarize the story? And I figured out, soon figured out, I might as well just read the whole thing because by the time I get finished summarizing it, I could have read the whole thing. So let's read the whole thing. Let's go to the Word of the Lord, the wonderful, if not sometimes difficult, Word. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king, that is David's heart, went out to Absalom. Now we're going to have to figure out what that means. We're going to have to figure that out. Verse 2. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Don't anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who's been mourning many days for the dead. And go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What's your trouble? And she answered, Alas, I am a widow, and my husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. Now think about two brothers quarreling with one another in the field. She's taking him back to Genesis, to Cain and Abel. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. 
Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. She's pulling off the story rather well, isn't she? Full of emotion. Let's see what happens. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. Inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. And now I've come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant, for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my lord the king, he's like an angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. She sprung a trap on him. She said, you're the one who's guilty. But then she got right back to her story because she didn't want to linger too long because she was, again, indeed, talking to a king. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my lord the king speak. And the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered and said, as surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant did this. But my Lord, he has wisdom like the wisdom of an angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. She's buttering him up. Verse 21. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage. Evidently, he was close by. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I found favor in your sight, my uh, lord, the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart 
in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and didn't come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Ladies, he was a hawk. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, barbers didn't make a whole lot of money off of Absalom. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. I don't know how much that is, but it's heavy. There was, were born to Absalom three sons. Now we're going to see later as we move into 2 Samuel, these three sons most likely died young. And one daughter, whose name was Tamar, named after her aunt. She was, guys, a knockout. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab wouldn't come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab wouldn't come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, Come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. He kissed the would-be traitor. Not the traitor kissing him. What are we to make of this chapter? Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all God's word is breathed out by God and it's all profitable for us, including this passage. How's this passage, though, profitable, Paul? I mean, I can understand how it kind of sets the stage for Absalom's coming insurrection, his, his treachery, his, the coming civil war where he's going to go against dad. You can see how it sets the ground for that. But is there something more to this text? Something about unique to this text that speaks to us. Joab uses this woman. He uses her to, to try and be another Nathan telling a story that implicates David and a story that will be used to convince, convince and convict David. 
and to convince him to send Joab to bring Absalom back home. Joab's going to go, and he brings him back home. But he brings him back home, and David and Joab shun him. They won't have anything to do with him. And that, of course, does what? It ticks off Absalom. He's pretty quickly ticked off, and it ticks him off. And what does he do? Well, I'll just burn. I'll just burn Joab's field. And one burned field later, Absalom is received by his dad with a kiss. What's going on? I'll be honest with you. I'll be frank with you. This chapter has been hard for me to decipher. It, it, it's it's not an easy story to unpack. Other than it, okay, being a stepping stone to the further treachery and insurrection of Absalom. And, and I think, at least for me, what makes it hard for me to kind of get into and understand is I'm not quite sure I understand David emotionally. I, I'm not quite sure I know what David is thinking and how he's feeling. I mean, go back to verse 1. Now, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. What does it mean for the king's heart to go out to Absalom? If you go back uh, into chapter 13, the very last verse, our ESV translation goes like this. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. What does that mean? Is it that his, his heart longed to go, his spirit longed to go out to Absalom because he loved Absalom and he wanted to bring Absalom back home? Well, if that's the case, why didn't he do it? Why didn't he go and say, Absalom, it's okay. I'm the one who made the mistake. Come back home. And, and if that's the case, why does Joab have to try to contrive this sort of ruse to trick David into letting him go get Absalom? Well, maybe we can read it as the Latin Vulgate would translate it. it, it, it his spirit ceased to go out to Absalom. Meaning that after Absalom kills Amnon, Absalom emotionally to David was dead. Done with you. Done. I, I, I don't even consider you as a son. You've killed my firstborn. But if that's the case, why, why does it add? Because he was comforted about Amnon. How does that fit in? Or maybe, and it can be translated this way, the king's spirit longed to go out to Absalom in anger. In punishment, because he had taken justice into his own hands. And, but if that's the case, then why didn't he go out? In anger, pursuing him, bringing him to justice for taking the law into his own hands. Ah, oh, but that may indeed be the case, because as we have seen before, David can get angry, can he? and not do anything about that anger. He doesn't go after Amnon's, uh, you know, he, he, he just, he allows Amnon to go and he allows, he allows that vengeful spirit to develop in Absalom. 
He, do, he doesn't defend Tamar. He gets angry and does nothing. Maybe he's frozen yet again, unwilling to act upon his anger. Or maybe it's something of all of that. Maybe he has mixed emotions. Have you ever had mixed emotions? You've had something go on, you're mad. At the same time, you just want to pull the person close to you and hug them. David's family's a mess. David emotionally is a mess. And in that mess, Joab knows it. Joab knows, for whatever reason, David's stuck. He's avoiding conflict. He's conflict-averse. David seems to be content. But remember, Tamar had cried out into the streets. People knew what had gone on. They knew that her half-brother had violated her in so, such a profane, perverse way. They knew that. And they knew David didn't do anything about it. But they knew someone who did. Absalom. And now, Absalom, handsome Absalom, was languishing outside the country. Now, where do you think the hearts of the people are going? Towards David or towards Absalom? Joab gets it. Absalom is a vigilante approved by others and a danger. And Joab, like guys, he's just going to fix things. That's what guys do. We fix things, don't we? Try to. I think that might help us unpack what's going on. So, second thing I think that might help is remember how the author is using key words. If you go back to chapter 13, you remember that he uses two words, but he uses them interestingly. He uses the word love, and he uses the word basically wisdom. Amnon loved Tamar. No, he lusted after Tamar. Jonadab was wise. Eh, he was schemer. He was cunning. The author of 1 Samuel chapter 13 and 14 is using the word love and using the word wisdom in the way that the world views those words. And maybe we are continuing to see unfolding before us in chapter 14 complete worldliness. The world's way of trying to handle things or not handle things. The world's way of trying to fix things or not fixing things with no reliance upon God. No turning to God. The world's view of wisdom and how to get what you want. The world's way or view of beauty and seeing things and what's desirable and what's not. And it's these last two, wisdom and beauty, that I just want us to focus on briefly. Worldly wisdom and worldly beauty. 
Notice verse 2 again. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman. And you, you, should, you should be thinking, oh, you mean wise like Jonadab was wise? And then we get down to verse 20 after she's done her trick story. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this, but my Lord has wisdom. Like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Sorry, David didn't have that sort of wisdom. <laughs> then, verse 21, Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this, go bring back the young man Absalom. Notice what the woman does. She takes Joab's plan. He puts the words in her. She takes them. She makes them her own. She executes the plan. She makes it her own. She does a worldly version of Nathan's divinely directed storytelling. She springs the trap. David is caught. But even in being caught, guess what? He sees through it. Ah, who put you up to this? Joab, huh? Joab put you up to this. She springs the trap. He's caught. He knows. And yet, did you notice what he does? He grants to her what she and Joab wanted. What does all that wisdom get? It gets Joab going and bringing Absalom back, doesn't it? But what does that mean? Does, does, does their worldly wisdom bring about a true pursuit of justice? Does it get Absalom to the place where he is confronted with his sin? You took the law into your own hands and you killed Amnon. That was not your place. Does that happen? Even Absalom's ready to, hey, I'm ready if I'm guilty, you know, let me execute me. Doesn't get that. Does it bring David to the point where he's confessing his own failures? Does he go to Absalom and say, Son, yes, you did that. That was wrong. But my son, I'm the one who failed in the pursuit of justice. I did not. I didn't pursue uh, the honor of Tamar. Does it bring about repentance and reconciliation? Kingdom repentance and reconciliation? It brings about a kiss. That's it. It brings about stage for future, a future mutiny. And even if you don't know how the rest of this story is going to unfold, you can feel it's a foreboding story. Here's my point. Worldly wisdom may look successful, but dear ones... It leads to death. Worldly wisdom isn't godly wisdom. You remember the words of the Apostle Paul, those beautiful words, honest words, reveal who we are. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? 
Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified." a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What's God's wisdom, dear ones? And he goes on, by the way, and says... (laughs) Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. You of in noble birth? You of foolishness in the sight of the world? What's godly wisdom? Bull it all down. Godly wisdom is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ on the cross. Wisdom incarnate crucified as a criminal on your behalf if you're trusting in Him. Paying the penalty of your sins, past, present, and future. What all the world looks like, weakness and foolishness, is true power and wisdom. But David in 2 Samuel chapter 14 falls for worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom, doesn't he? We do too. May I repeat that? We do too. Every time you and I Every time we try to fix things, manipulate things, control things, even to try to get what we consider to be good ends, and we do it in our own strength, in our own reliance, and we don't turn to God, we are falling prey to worldly wisdom. When we do it in our own strength, within our own wits, in ways that aren't self-giving, and in ways in which we don't lead with confession of our own sin, our own guilt, then what we have followed is worldly wisdom. When we don't die to self and live for others, We have fallen prey to worldly wisdom, no matter how smart and wise we think we are. 2 Samuel chapter 14 speaks to us, speaking to you, is speaking to me. In what ways are you prone to fall to worldly wisdom? Is it at school? Is it at work? Is it in your business dealings? Is it in your relationships with your neighbors? Is it in your family? With your children, 
or with your parents, with your siblings, or your spouse? Is it in the realm of politics? Is it in the realm of social media? We are all prone to fall prey to worldly wisdom. May the Lord open our eyes and grant us godly wisdom. Worldly wisdom, worldly beauty. Verse 25. Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. As Absalom. I'm, I'm struck again and again. I, I use this as an illustration in my teaching of, of history and of literature. I'm struck when I think about the first uh, televised presidential um, debate. It took place in 1960. Some of you are thinking, that is ancient history. That's actually even five years before Pastor Lee was born. I mean, that really is old. 1960. First year, first time. Do you remember who the candidates were? Nixon and Kennedy. JFK. And it's interesting, they polled those, it was, it was televised, but it was also, uh, it, was, it went out by radio. And they, they polled those who listened by radio and those who watched by television. And the overwhelming majority of those who listened by radio said, which one won the debate? Nixon. Then he wiped the floor. But when those who watched it were polled, who won the debate? Kennedy. He wiped the floor. Do you know why? Well, when you watched it, Nixon looked pasty. He looked kind of sick. He had the perpetual five o'clock shadow. He had a scowl every now and then. But what did Kennedy look like? Young, vibrant, handsome. No matter your views of either man, looks and appearances won the day for the television crowd. And they were winning the day in 2 Samuel 14. And might I say they win the day so often in our day? External appearances, worldly beauty, and vanity wrapped up in it were winning the day. But where did such winning take Israel? It took them to civil war. It took them to an Absalom going against his father. It, but brothers and sisters, it wasn't an old, a morally weakened King David that Israel needed. Nor was it the handsome and vain Absalom that Israel needed. No, the Israel then and the Israel now need and will always need whom the world thinks is foolish and whom the world thinks is utterly ugly. And who is that person? I read to you earlier Isaiah 53. Hear it again. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. 
he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. If you were walking down the streets and there was Jesus, you wouldn't even bat an eye. You wouldn't even acknowledge his existence. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. But if by God's grace you have come to desire Jesus and you have come to follow him, when you follow a Savior like this, then things like power and wisdom and beauty take on whole new meanings. Power means the grace-enabled ability to lay down your life for somebody else. Wisdom is the God-given ability to be willing to look like a fool before the world. And beauty is being able to reach out and touch the mangled face, the contagious face of a leper. It's not the machinations of political parties trying to destroy nominees and their candidates, and we'll probably see some of that. It's not the empty boast of angry intellectuals who think they know everything. And it's not the self-absorbed, selfie idea of beauty. It's the beauty of a man nailed upon a cross, dying and bleeding for the likes of us. May you be captivated by that beauty. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that by your Spirit you would do the supernatural work of opening our eyes to find in Jesus, the one who had no form or majesty, no beauty that men should desire, but to find in him true beauty, true wisdom, true power, and be captivated by his love. For we pray it in his name. Amen.